slackness. But it's the message of this morning, and that's the message of the gospel, which is repentance. Repent. So I'm going to start with a question for you to kind of ponder on then this morning. And that's a question that may offend you. And the question is, is your religion vain? Is your religion vain? Isaiah 29 and 13 Lord would say, Wherefore the Lord saith, For as much as this people draw near me with their mouth, and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men. God's describing a vain religion there. One where people say they're serving him, and with their mouths they do, their mouth, and they fear him because men have told him, told them that you're supposed to fear him. Instead of drawing near from your heart and fearing him because he is God. Let's go to let's go to Malachi. Malachi, last book of the Old Testament. After this one is going to be written, you're going to have that period of silence. It's about 400 years or so when there won't be any prophets in Israel. Not public prophets, at least. We know that there's at least a couple of occasions um, where the Lord revealed things to people individually. Um, like... Uh, the old man Simon, who was revealed that he would see the Christ before he died. Um, but it was a period where there was not prophets coming and declaring the word. Okay? So one of the last things that was written in Malachi 4 and 5 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Okay? That's John the Baptist. That was the forerunner. If you remember from a few weeks ago, when John the Baptist's father, Zacharias, go to Luke, had the angel visit him while he was inside the temple burning incense. This is what the angel said unto him. Fear not, Zacharias, thy prayer is heard. Thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son. Thou shalt call his name John, and thou shalt have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth. For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He shall be filled with the Holy Ghost even from his mother's womb. And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God." He shall go before him in the spirit and the power of Elias, that's Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Okay. So we have looked 
at the conception of John the Baptist, and the birth of John the Baptist, and the conception of Jesus, and the birth of Jesus. We looked at the visit from the wise men, and then the later Jesus having to flee with his mother and stepfather into Egypt, while Herod the Great was seeking for his life. And then Herod the Great would die, um, and they would come back, and they found out that Herod's son, Archelaus, was reigning in his stead in Judea. Herod actually had three sons. There's Herod, Antipas, Archelaus, and Philip. Herod, by the way, it's kind of like Caesar. It's almost a title. It, it literally means hero. And so there are multiple Herods, and that can confuse you if you first time you're reading through. Herod the Great is the one who rebuilt the temple, and he's the one who died uh, after trying to kill Jesus. And then he had his three sons, Archelaus, Herod Antipas, and Herod Philip, or Philip. And they are going to each have a portion of uh, Israel that they are responsible for. Okay. So let's go... The last thing we heard about John in Luke chapter 1 and verse 80 said, And the child grew and waxed strong in the spirit and was in the deserts until the day of his showing unto Israel. So he was not in a public figure. He was out in obscurity. Right? He was not uh, in or seen, um, but he was out in the deserts until his showing to Israel. And we won't pick up with him again until chapter 3 of Luke. Um, we're going to fast forward to the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Now, according to secular history, Tiberius Caesar started reigning around the year 14 A.D., and so you're around 29 or 30 A.D. when John the Baptist comes on the scene. All right? And then it's going to give us who are our political players at this point. You've got Pontius Pilate being the governor of Judea. That was where Archelaus was formerly over. He's not in power anymore. Pontius Pilate, the Roman, is over Judea. So you've got the southern portion of Israel um, governed directly by Pontius Pilate. You've got Herod being the Tetrarch of Galilee. That's the northern portion. His brother Philip, Tetrarch of Echerea. That's over on the east. And of the region of Trachonitis and Lysanus, the Tetrarch of... And Lysanus, the Tetrarch of Abilene. Apparently Abilene is pretty far north, at least according to the map in the back of my Bible. All right. And then you've got Ananias and Caiaphas being the high priests. The word of God came unto John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. So he's still in the wilderness, but that's when the word comes to him. So this is the first time the word has come in 400 years. And his mission, as it is written in the book of Elias, the prophet, that's Isaiah, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be brought low, the crooked shall be made straight, the smooth sh the rough ways shall be made smooth. Right, so if you wanted to imagine Georgia DOT going out into the rough part where you've got some pretty gnarly dirt roads, a lot of potholes, steep ditches, and they've got to go through and smooth it all. all right? Kind of like when the interstate, you don't go up and down a bunch of the mountains and hills, you kind of just blow right through them. That's the image that's being conveyed. That's the task that was put with John the Baptist. Instead of having everything just being hilter-skilter, he's to come in, provide a smooth path for the Lord. Okay, We can kind of understand that imagery. What does that, what does that actually mean? 
means that he is preparing the people for the Savior to come. All right? And he's going to preach a very particular message. He came into the country about Jordan preaching the baptism of repentance. Repentance for the remission of sins. So he is baptizing folks. It's the first time this has ever happened. There are no baptisms in the Old Testament. This is a new thing that God has given John the Baptist. That's why they call him the Baptist because he's the baptizer. Baptize literally means to immerse. So if you get confused about what sprinkling is, I don't know. Ain't a baptism. Baptism is to immerse, fully submerge. All right? The baptism of repentance. So he is teaching the people it is time to repent. All right? Now, just for your brief geography lesson, it says he's in the area around Jordan. What's Jordan, kids? The Jordan is a river. Right. Flows north of the Sea of Galilee, and then down from the Sea of Galilee, down to the Dead Sea. And there it stops. There's no outlet in the Dead Sea. So the Jordan River Valley, because water flows downhill, right? There's a big valley, and that's where the Jordan River is. So on each side of the Jordan River, you've got mountain chains. On one side, towards the Mediterranean Sea, that's where you'll have Jerusalem and Bethlehem and all these towns built along the mountain chain. And the Jordan River was a, uh, a boundary line. You, know, you had some of the tribes when they first came into Canaan that were on the far side and some that were closer to the Mediterranean. But it was in there, it's a valley. Okay? Now the water there doesn't flow very quickly. Between the Sea of Galilee and the, sea, the Dead Sea, it's about 75 miles long. Um, and for each mile, it only drops like 9 feet in elevation. So it's relatively slow river. Um, I think the Okoe River up there where you do whitewater rafting drops like 56 feet or something. So it's, um, it's a slow river. It's kind of meandering, at least according to Wikipedia, whatever that's worth. Um, all right. So that's where he is baptizing. All along the valley of the Jordan River. Now this is interesting because there's not a whole lot of cities there. He's still out in the wilderness. And yet that's how he is to prepare the way for the Lord. If you or I were tasked with, all right, you need to get the message out, where would you start going? We'd probably go to towns, right? But that wasn't the way uh, the Lord chose for this to happen. All right? Let's go to Matthew chapter 3. Read a little bit. It's around 29, 30 A.D. It says, In those years came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent. Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And the same John had his raiment of camel's hair and a leathern girdle about his loins, his meat was locust and wild honey. Right, so, this is a strange looking dude. Camel's hair was not exactly a popular item to garb yourself in. Alright? Yep. Y'all ever seen one of those movies with Jeremiah Johnson, one old trapper? Just, you could tell where did he live? Out in the land, right? 
he wore what he could get his hands on. He ate what he could find. That's kind of your image for John the Baptist. He's got this rough, ugly garment made of camel hair. He got a big old leather belt to kind of hold it together. You're eating bugs and honey. Right? That's your image for, for this, this prophet. Now he's coming in the spirit and power of Elijah. Elijah was described as being a hairy man too. Now that could be referred to his actual body or that could be referred to the garments that he wore. There were false prophets in the Old Testament days who would dress up in hairy garments to try and make themselves seem more believable. So I think it's likely that was how Elijah looked as well. So you've got this kind of wild man out in the wilderness eating bugs, wild honey, water he can find, and declaring to everyone, you need to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And I've got a, a note here uh, that I, from Luke 7 and 24. That was when uh, Jesus would make some comments to the people about John the Baptist and his appearance. and said, What went you out in the wilderness for to see? Why would you go out to John? A reed shaken with the wind? What went you out for to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, they which are gorgeously apparelled and live delicately are in the king's court. But what went you out for to see? A prophet. Yea, I say unto you, and much more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before the Lord. And I say unto you, Among those that are born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. But he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And all the people that heard him and the publicans justified God being baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves being not baptized of him. All right. So there were those who went out, they heard John, and they were baptized. They believed him. Even though he looked strange. Even though he was living out in the middle of nowhere, he didn't have the soft garments which is how the religious leaders at that time would look the ones who had their vain uh, show of religion so people are coming out to him then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about Jordan so the word's gotten out there's a prophet there's a prophet in town. He's baptiz- baptizing people. we got to go see him. And these are the common people who are going. The publicans. These are, these are the shyster tax collectors. You know, for our... Imagine a payday lender. Okay? Somebody you just kind of look at and think, yeah, you take advantage people. They're the ones who are going and believing. They're the ones who are being baptized. Now, the scribes and Pharisees and lawyers, these are the masters of the law. They understand it intellectually. They appear to be living it. They go out because they're wondering about it. They think it's a trap, really. They want to know what's, what's going on. And John recognizes them. In Luke 3, he's going to call them out. So these are the the scribes and the Pharisees, Pharisees and Sadducees. 
It says, Then said he to the multitude that came forth to, to be baptized of him. It says, O generation of vipers. Generation of vipers. That's some pretty strong language. Right. Your whole age, all your people, you... <laughs> just a bunch of snakes. Which harkened back to Satan himself in the garden. A bunch of deceivers. O generations of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And there is a wrath to come. And then he gives this charge. Bring forth, therefore, fruits worthy of repentance. And begin not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. Bring forth, therefore, fruits worthy of repentance, meat for repentance, evidence of true repentance. Okay? The Pharisees served with their lips. Their life looked like they were serving God. These are the ones who didn't miss a church service. These are the ones who tithed exactly what they were supposed to under the law. If you didn't believe them, they weren't happy to tell you about it. These are the ones who wanted the praise of men to reward them for their religious devotion to God. But was it real? Was it genuine? I would say no. Jesus would upbraid them in Matthew 23 and 14. It says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees. And scribes were those who were uh, copyists of the law, knew it very well. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayer. Therefore shall ye receive the greater damnation. Rather than showing mercy and charity, they would convince these widows that, well, you really need to give and then they would take it. And rather than praying genuinely to be heard of the Father, they would for a show make long prayers. Because they shall receive a greater damnation. Over in Mark 12 and 38, Jesus would again say, Beware of the scribes, which love to go in long clothing, and love salutations in the marketplaces, and the chief seats in the synagogues, and the uppermost rooms at feasts, which devour widows' houses, and for a pretense makes long prayers. These shall receive greater damnation. Under the Old Testament law, you had to have the little fringe on your garments to um, remind you to pray. Mind your devotion to God. Well, these guys would get the super long addiction. 
Right? It would enlarge their borders and their phylacteries so that everyone could see, look how religious I am. And they were covetous. That's what Luke 16 and 14 would reveal. Luke 16. This is Jesus who had just told them you can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and man. Um, This is verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he'll hate one and love the other, or else he will hold the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon literally translates to riches, wealth. Now it's, it's, it's... Put in a form of like a deity, the, the idol of wealth. You can't serve them both. And the Pharisees also, who were covetous, heard all these things and they derided him. They sneered at him. He's saying you can't have it both ways. They, they, they thought they could. I can appear to serve God and I can serve my covetous desires. I want stuff. I want power. I want influence. I want sway. I want men to think that I'm great. None of those are fruits worthy of repentance. That's a vain religion. Vain means worthless. Empty. Idle. But see how John responds to the people asking, what shall we do? Luke 3, verse 10. And the people asked him, and he just said, you bring forth fruits worthy of repentance. And the people asked him, what shall we do? What shall we do? And he answered and said, he that hath two coats... Let him impart to him that hath none. And he that hath meat or food, let him do likewise. What's the answer? Show mercy. Show charity. Don't covet your stuff so much that you can't ignore someone who has a real need. Now, biblical needs. Food and raiment. It's needs. It's not the cell phone. It's not the latest shoes. It's not the car. Those are all American wants that somehow get distorted into needs. That's not. This is, you see somebody who is naked, cold, not eating, and you're still going to turn your back because you care more about keeping your stuff? That's covetousness. Show mercy. Show charity. Then came also the publicans, your tax collectors, your payday lenders if you want, to be baptized. And said unto him, Master, what shall we do? And he said unto them, Exact no more than that which is appointed to you. Okay, so if Caesar says, Tax collectors, you got to go get ten pieces of silver from everybody it was really tempting for these guys to go, Elliot, Caesar says you owe 15. If you don't, I'm going to haul you off to jail. Where do you think the extra five goes? In the pocket. 
They were known to be corrupt. That's why old Zacchaeus, he was a chief publican. That's why people are like, what do you mean the master's going to go eat with this joker? And what does he say when he comes down from the tree? He said, half of my goods I give to the poor. All right. And if I've taken anything from anybody wrong from me, I'm going to restore it just exactly what I gave him, what I took from him. No, I'm going to take four times as much and give it back. Right? He wouldn't have said that if he hadn't have taken it. Right? What shall you do? Exact no more than that which is appointed to you. Only charge people what Caesar or whoever the governing body is does. Don't defraud them. So what does that translate to? Honesty in business. You ever hear the expression, well, it's just good business. Often, that's business lingo for I'm going to lie, cheat, and steal. Because things that I wouldn't do in my personal life, somehow it's okay in my business life. That ain't so. Mercy and charity instead of covetousness. Honesty and business instead of fraud and avarice. Avarice is just another word for covetousness. That love of money, the desire, putting it first before all else. All right. Then the soldiers likewise demanded of him. Now, I don't know if these are Roman soldiers. Most likely they were probably soldiers of the, the high priests. Right? They had their own um, soldiers, but these are soldiers. And they come unto him and they say, And what shall we do? And he said unto them, Do violence to no man, neither accuse any falsely, and be content with your wages. Okay? Be just. Soldiers had a lot of authority. They had a physical menacing presence. They could just about rob you and nobody's going to say anything. He's saying don't abuse your authority to take advantage of somebody. Don't do violence. Don't physically rob them. Don't accuse somebody. Well, this guy is full of sedition, so we should throw him in jail and then we'll just take his stuff. All right? And be what with your wages? Content, doing justice in all that you do, and content where you're at, as opposed to using your position for violent extortion or using force. So what's the theme through these things that they're told not to do? It was out of the love of money. Love of money is the root of all evil. Didn't say money is evil. Money's just a tool. But out of our heart is where all manner of wickedness originates. When we love money and we start engaging in these activities, it's when we're serving it. We're serving mammon. And we may be giving lip service to God. We may be showing up to search church on Sunday. We may be praying public or privately, but when we're loving money, we're not serving God. It's a heart issue. That's one. It's a baptism of repentance. What are fruits meet for repentance? This is a big one. Let's see. Go to Matthew 23 and 23. This was one of Jesus' criticisms of the Pharisees 
Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought ye to have done and not to leave the other undone. So this is kind of a a loaded um, illusion, but let's, let's try to unpack it and make it clear. When you are making a roast, what is the main ingredient in the roast? The roast. Is it the salt? Is it the pepper? Is it the thyme or cumin or whatever? These are little spices. That's what, is it the little things you sprinkle on there? No. The big deal is the roast itself. He's saying, you scribes and Pharisees, you claim to serve God... And in tithing, the things that you give to God, you're giving Him the sprinklings, the lip service, the show, the public prayers, and you're omitting the roast itself. You can't have the recipe right. The weightier matters, the thing that has sustenance, is judgment and mercy and faith. Weighty matters. Do you need to have prayers, do you need to have the, the money given to the church, all those other things that they were doing for show? Yes, you do need to do them. But you've got to have the main thing. The judgment and mercy and faith. Alright? So, this is the overall message that the forerunner was bringing. Forerunner being John the Baptist before the Savior. A baptism of repentance. They, all the people came out from Judea and Jerusalem and around Jordan. They came to him and says at one point they were all baptized. That's a pretty big deal. There was a spiritual revival going on in Israel at this time. After 400 years of cold and dark, there is revival. Seemingly out of nowhere with no planning committees and no you know, cross-coordination and synergies and all the other garbage that we try to manufacture when we try to manufacture revival. And all these people are coming out to hear this crazy-looking dude with this radical message of repent. Turn to God. Be baptized for the mission of sin. And there's one coming mightier than mine. It's coming after. So when that mightier one comes, does the message change? Give you a short answer. No. Matthew 4. Matthew 4 and verse 17, I believe, for the one. Public ministry of Jesus Christ begins. Verse 17 it says that from that time, Jesus began to preach. And to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Same message. Later in chapter 9, his purpose would be described. Jesus' purpose, Matthew 9 and 11, uh, he's being questioned, why are you eating with publicans and sinners, those, those nasty people, the ones who are low, the ones who are vile, who've committed great sins, the ones who cheat people, why are you eating with them? He said unto them, 
They that be whole or healed need no physician, but they that are sick. Doctor goes to the sick folk, right? Go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. For I am not come to call the righteous, and that would be self-righteous, I'm not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He came to call sinners to repentance. That was his purpose. He preached, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. His purpose is to call sinners to repentance. And then later in chapter 11, he would actually upbraid, which means to get on to. You ever been got out and on to, children? He would upbraid some cities because they hadn't repented. Matthew 11, say 20. Then he began to upbraid the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done. He did his great miracles in these cities, raising people from the dead, healing the blind, the lame, the maimed, where most of his mighty works were done because they repented not. Woe unto thee, Chorazan. Woe unto thee, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which have been done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, those are some you know vile port cities that are just known for being a Gentile cesspool. I mean, it's, it's basically mini Babylon. He said, if, if what I'd done here had been done there, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. I say unto you, it would be more tolerable in Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And thou, Capernaum, it's like his home base. You see, Read through all the Gospels. Where does he keep going back to? Over and over again. Capernaum. He says, And thou, Capernaum, which are exalted unto heaven, shall be brought down low to hell. If the mighty works which have been done in thee had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. Why? Because they would have repented. But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. Okay? Repent. Repent. You look up Strong's, that word repent, what does it mean? It literally means to think differently. Think differently. To reconsider. In parentheses it says to feel compunction. I've never used the word compunction in my life. I had to look up that. Compunction is a compound word. comes from Latin. Com means severe. All right, so we got an intensive there. Severe punction means piercing. Puncture wound. A severe piercing. Remember in Acts 2 and 37, day of Pentecost, uh, Peter is up preaching, and all the men around him were pricked to their heart. What shall we do? Repent and be baptized. So there's a change. There is a change that comes with it. This is not just a, a feeling of, I really didn't like the effects or the bad things that happened when I messed up. Right? That's our, that's our worldly, ooh, things didn't go my way. This is different. This is thinking about, I want to serve God. I want to put His wants, His desires, His expectations in place of my own. Not just let's blend them together and see, and kind of get a hybrid here. We'll get some things that God wants and some that I want, but I want Him. Can't serve God and man, mammon, and myself at the same time. Okay? Now, did this message change once Jesus had ascended? No, we just said that. And uh, Pentecost, uh, when the apostles had been waiting, they were told they'll stay there in Jerusalem until the Comforter came, and that was when 
Uh, you had the, the mighty rushing wind and the appearance of something that looked like flame, and they began to speak uh, in other languages. And all these people were pricked to their heart, saying, Men and brethren, what shall we do? They were pricked in their hearts and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promises unto you and to your children and all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Okay? And that's significant. You can't, can't repent until the Lord has called you. Before then, you don't see anything wrong with you. You think you're okay. You're not like those title lenders. You're not like harlots or drug dealers or whatever, whoever you think is lower than you on the pecking order. It's only by God's grace that you can see how far you are from Him. So the message doesn't change once it's given to the apostles. John, repent. Jesus, repent. Apostles, repent. Both in Acts and also from the very beginning when they were first sent out. You can see that back in Mark 6. Mark 6 and verse 7. Maybe it's not 6. There it is. And he called unto them the twelve, and began to send them forth two by two, and gave them power over unclean spirits, and commanded them they should take nothing for their journey. Jump on down to verse 12. And they went out and preached that men should repent. We talked about there's a difference between godly repentance to truly think differently, to put the mind of Christ on versus ungodly repentance. You, you could see that with um, Judas. Judas repented. He betrayed Jesus, Matthew 27 and verse 3. Judas, when he betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, saw that Jesus was condemned to death, repented himself. This is a different word, repent. This means to have care for it afterwards. He regretted it. He repented himself, brought again the 30 pieces to the chief priest and the elders, saying, I have sinned, I have betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? See thou to it. And he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. That would not be a good example of godly repentance. He had regret. He saw that he'd messed up. But that's not what we're talking about. A better example would be over in Matthew 21. Matthew 21 is a parable of two sons. Jump into context in verse 23. Um, Jesus came into the temple, and the chief priests and the elders uh, asked him, By what authority do you these things? And he said, I'll tell you if you answer one question to me. It says, The baptism of John. Whence is it? Is it from heaven or of men? Did John the Baptist make this thing up, or was he given commandment by God in heaven to do it? And so they huddle among themselves. They say, well, let's see. If we say that it's um, from heaven, then he'll say, why didn't you believe him? But if we say it's of men, well, all the other people counted him as a prophet. They went out there, they got baptized to him, and we're afraid of them. They might stone us. doesn't say that here, but there are other times when they're afraid of the people and that they don't want to get stoned. All, we fear the people, for all hold John as a prophet. And they answered Jesus and said, We cannot tell. And he said unto them, Neither do I tell thee by what authority I do these two, these two things. 
And he says, but what think ye? I'm going to pose you a different question. A certain man had two sons. He came to the first and said, son, go work today in my vineyard. And he answered and said, I will not. But afterwards, he repented and went. He came to his second and said, likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir, and went not. Whither them twain did the will of the Father? And they said unto him, The first. Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that publicans and harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came unto you in the way of righteousness, and ye believed him not. But the publicans and the harlots believed him, and ye, when ye had seen it, repented not afterwards, that ye might believe. Those two sons, one is outright defiant. I ain't going to do it. That is every single child of God before they're called to the Lord. I won't serve you. I hate you. You may not consciously think that, but that's where you're at. But afterwards, when you're called, you repent of that and you go. And you serve. As opposed to those who get the list service. Yes, sir. I'm on the job. And don't. We need to be very careful of being that second one. God doesn't need lip service. Doesn't need anything from us. He certainly doesn't expect lip service. Doesn't give him any glory or honor. But the going. Not being a hearer of the word only, but a doer. So, my question to you is, where are you today? Well, I'm, I'm too far from the Lord. Nope. Luke 15, 1 through 7. Then drew near unto him all the publicans and the sinners for to hear him. Imagine in your crowd, you've got these basically payday lenders, you've got streetwalkers. Came around Jesus to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes murmured among themselves, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. And he spake this parable unto them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lose one, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness, and go after that which is lost until he find it? And when he find it, he layeth it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he cometh home, he calleth his friends and neighbors, and say, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. For I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. Are you too far from God? No. There is joy in heaven. Joy. Over repentance. Over repenting sheep. Wherever you are, we can still repent and commit to thinking differently, to thinking in the Lord's terms, to serve Him with our whole heart, strength, mind, and body 
and no longer serve ourselves. So that's your question. Where are you today? And here's a harder question. Maybe it's a harder question for me, but one that involves you. Where are we as a church? Revelation 2 and 1. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh amidst the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne and hast patience, and for my name's sake thou hast labored and hast not fainted. Some good things. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Who is the first love of every church? Jesus himself. This was a busy church. They'd done a lot of things in Jesus' name, but they were not loving him. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen. That was where you were before, when you were loving him. And repent and do the first works. Those works that you do when you love the Lord. Else I will come unto thee quickly and remove thy candlestick out of this place, except thou repent. Do the first works. Remember who that first love is. And when you find areas in your life, or in our church, where we're not doing that, repent. We turn back to the Lord. We think differently. Thank you. Anybody have a number you'd like to sing in closing? 314. 314.